0: Some investors assume that ESG principles do not apply to emerging market debt. Elizabeth Colloran of Loomis Sales, however, does not share that opinion. She's convinced that by integrating environmental, social, and governance criteria into emerging market debt, Loomis Sales is able to identify the most successful and most socially responsible businesses of the future. Elizabeth is Vice President at Loomis Sales and Portfolio Manager of Emerging Market Debt Portfolios. She focuses on investment strategy, portfolio construction and risk management. Elizabeth is joined today by her colleague Sinran Pan, Credit Research Analyst at Loomis Sales who is based in Singapore. In this podcast, I'll talk with both of them about how Loomis Sales integrates ESG into Emerging Market Debt Investments through engagement engagement. And with an emphasis on climate change. Elizabeth will provide us with big picture portfolio insights, and Sinran will discuss the rigorous analysis going into evaluating an individual credit. Loomis Sales is an affiliate of NetAxis Investment Managers. Elizabeth and Sinran, welcome. It's great to have the both of you. It's
1: great to be here. It's nice to be here, thank you.
0: Thanks so much for joining. Uh, Elizabeth, maybe first question uh, for you. Emerging market debt blurs together two kinds of investment opportunities, EM sovereigns and EM corporates. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking about EM corporates. Why do you think this asset class deserves attention?
2: That's a great question. Simply put, the EM corporate asset class is, is just really a great value proposition. EM corporates are a much larger opportunity set with about five times the number of issuers than in the EM sovereign space. Also the EM corporate index is higher quality from a credit ratings perspective. This is notable given that EM companies are often penalized by rating agencies for weakness of the sovereign. And as a result, you know, the companies can be significantly higher quality than credit ratings would indicate from a default perspective more recent experience, really the last 10 years, highlights that EM high-yield sovereigns defaults have been higher and lumpier than in the corporate space. Last year is a good example when we saw a double-digit surge in high-yield defaults in the sovereign space, whereas in the EM corporate high-yield space, we're only at about 3.5%, which is significantly lower than the U.S. high-yield space. Um, You know, so these advantages are not reflected in EM corporate valuations. On a matched ratings basis, EM corporates offer a consistent spread premium to the sovereign and to their developed market counterparts. So this is really a great opportunity set, especially in this low-yield environment. Great, exactly.
0: And then I understand, Elizabeth, that the market for U.S. dollar-denominated EM corporate bonds is currently as large as the European investment-grade market, how are you able to maintain coverage in all emerging markets?
2: Yeah, so there is a lot of work to be done, but we, we have the firepower. Uh, you know, Loomis has a long history of corporate ca- credit research. For almost 100 years, Loomis has been investing based on deep fundamental credit research. So in the EM corporate space, we have focused on building a strong credit analyst team. It's 13 people with highly experienced senior analysts. And we also rely on our macro strategies team for our... Um, for the sovereign views. Our resources are based in Boston, London and Singapore, where as you mentioned, Zinron is located with our Asia credit team. So as an, and also I'll say as a top tier credit shop, the team can leverage the expertise we have of um, uh, really the global credit analysts that have sector specializations, for example, in metals and mining and, and the energy sectors. Now, what do you
0: find most compelling, Elizabeth, about investing in in EM corporates? Why should investors consider these opportunities? Most
2: compelling. (laughs) Uh, So that would be the the underlying long-term growth prospects in EM. Even if you consider some uneven growth recovery as we come out of the pandemic this year, a couple years out, we should return to only about 2% real GDP growth in the developed markets. But the growth back drop that our EM companies will face will be over two times this rate of growth. So, you know, EM corporates offer exposure to the fastest growing economies of the global markets. And this is a powerful tailwind and additive to the many sectors where incremental growth comes from simply increasing availability and adoption of goods and services along with rising incomes. One other thing I would add to that, in answering a question like this, I always think about the companies that come you know that make it to our space they are the the more successful companies In their countries to be able to issue a U.S. dollar bond. And, you know, I've met many management teams and I think broadly speaking, the EM companies, they they borrow for a very specific purpose, building a factory, upgrading a a telecom facility, making a port deeper. And the goal is to expand and grow. But companies are prudent. They have seen EM crises. They know how to focus on liquidity and protect against currency swings. What we don't see in this market is financial and engineering, uh, such as issuing debt to buy back shares or pay dividends. So you can't, you can categorize EM corporate debt, I think you could say it's productive borrowing. And this is another very compelling reason to be invested in the space. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Sinran, let me, let me turn to you for, for a moment. Um, when you're doing your analysis, are there unique bottom-up factors that you take into account for EM uh, corporates that are different from other asset classes?
1: Yeah, I think there are mainly uh, three factors for me. Well, first, uh, many businesses in EM are still in a rapidly expanding stage. So the market is highly fragmented and there are no absolute industry leaders. And also policies and regulations keep developing. So for analysts, uh, we need to understand the competition landscape and the regulation changes to analyze each company's uh, specific strategy so we can make a better judgment to which company will eventually sustain and even grow their market share. So second factor, I'll say, uh, is disclosure transparency for me. For most companies, we cover our list date. But even so, across different regions, accounting rules and disclosure requirement could be quite different. So for me, I think it takes more detailed work to drill down the numbers, make your forecast, and then compare it with the actual result, back and forth to eventually get convinced. And then the last one I'll say, um, in terms of ownership structure, it is different. So unlike developed market where the companies are held and owned by a large group of investors, in EM, they're still like majority owned by founder family or uh, sovereign entities. So this could also lead to different strategies, incentives, and also like we talk about corporate governance.
0: Thanks for clarifying. Uh, Elizabeth, some investors uh, still tend to think of emerging market corporate debt as similarly risky to US or maybe European high yield. What would you like to say to those investors?
2: Yeah, this is clearly still a, a perception. We hear it a lot, but it is actually a pretty big mismatch. The reality is that EM corporate, the EM corporate space is really tilted towards investment grade. Um, an appropriate comparison would be to look at the high yield segment of the EM corporate universe relative to those developed uh, market high yield indices. If you look at this more in an apples to apples comparison, you'll find that over the last 15 years or so, um, EM high yield, the corporate space there has offered a higher annualized return, but with higher volatility to the DM high yield indices. But really, it's been a very similar um, risk-adjusted return profile. For some time now, we've been seeing clients look under the hood at the various segments of the broader EM corporate space, you know, maybe looking at just the IG component, just the high yield component, various maturity buckets, um, potentially excluding certain parts of, of the world or emphasizing a particular region. So in this way, I think EM corporates can offer a risk return profile to meet most objectives.
0: Broadly speaking, Elizabeth, how has your thinking about investing in ESG shifted? Uh, how has the importance of ESG evolved maybe within uh, emerging market credit?
2: Well, you know, it's always difficult to characterize something that started years back and evolved fairly naturally and gradually. But it is fair to say that ESG factors as part of our process, has has become they've become much more of an explicit focus in recent years. So I would not Um, say that our thinking has really shifted, um, but we've become more intentional on the data used in our fundamental issuer analysis. We are integrating a lot of the new data as it has become available, and we are more focused on the implications of explicit ESG risks. We have increasingly recognized that particularly with climate risk, energy transition, and concerns about stranded assets, these are key considerations with our fundamental ratings. As you heard uh, Zinran talk about, there's, there's really, you know, quite a bit of work that is done there. Um, from our perspective, you know, ESG factors are just, they're another layer in building a full picture of an issuer. That is integrating a firm's sustainability framework into the credit assessment, and then importantly, at the portfolio level, actively looking for investments that promote the ESG characteristics. What is really involved and this evolution has accelerated in recent years, it's the data, the analytics of a wide range of ESG measures. And it's looking, it's really prompted us to look for better clarity and ask better questions. And, you know, we have the ability to engage on these issues as both we, you know, the investors, but also the companies themselves are getting better at what they need to be doing and how they need to be reporting the data. And I guess to the second part of your question, if I remember it correctly now, the growing importance of ESG factors in in EM credit, I can answer that two ways. So the first, from a company investment perspective, um, in emerging markets, I see a focus on ESG factors as providing an opportunity for real impact, given the varying stage of development of EM economies and industry sectors, a focus on topics such as energy transition or diversity and inclusion can have a real impact, especially where there is a real need in the broader economy or in society. And I guess the second um, angle would be um, that ESG factors and EM credit are rapidly expanding And the investor base and even policy requirements as we know this year in the case of the eu and that you know esg it just has become a more and more uh, a bigger part of the credit analysis and valuation
0: Mm. sinran elizabeth already referred to engagement and to esg data which i can imagine you know keep on growing um what does that look like for you uh from your perspective as an analyst
1: well, yeah, we definitely see more data provided by companies uh, this year, although uh, it still differs a lot in terms of quantity and quality. And also there's a lack of standards uh, to tell the company exactly what to disclose in the ESG report. But I think uh, with the EU taxonomy launched recently and other regions to follow, we will have more common rules and understanding in the future. And I, as we mentioned uh, We also see more data provided by third-party agencies regarding rating or carbon footprint. So for rating, I think each external rating agency has their own uh, proprietary methodologies when it comes to decide what constitutes ESG, what exact metrics they choose, and then what weight they assign. So um, this creates some challenges for both issuers and us. I mean, for issuers, uh, they may have to engage more than one rating agency to face different group of investors. And then it increases their cost. And for us, uh, it's quite hard to compare the rating across different providers.
0: Many factors come into play there. Um, Elizabeth, as a as a dedicated EM investor, can you perhaps um, discuss your ESG philosophy for ESG integration uh, as it relates to EM debt uh, investing?
2: Sure. So we really try to be hyper aware of the EM universe when we're working to integrate ESG into our process. Meaning we start with recognizing that emerging markets ESG investing has important distinction to ESG investing in the developed markets. In EM... Firms often operate in areas lacking basic infrastructure and become the sole provider of roads, schools, and healthcare, and, and many other uh, services. The sovereigns themselves are often make, often making difficult policy choices given their resource constraints. When looking at the ESG score for emerging market corporates, we can often find companies with very wide divergence in their E, S, and G uh, scores. So. Think about a state-owned coal-fired utility. We have to think about the degrees of freedom this company can have as the primary or even sole source of electricity for an economy. How can we engage with the company and the sovereign? What can we reasonably expect for an outcome? And how does this play into the broader social issues? You know, I guess another one to think about, um, you can think about an oil and gas company, which may score poorly on a variety of environmental uh, factors given sector considerations. However, the stated goal of the firm is to grow the natural gas business, which will reduce a broad country reliance on diesel generation and provide a critical step in reducing the overall country's CO2 emission, emissions. So, So these are realities that we see more so in EM than DM. As a result, I think when integrating ESG principles into our portfolios, we use really a mosaic approach rather than a rigid set of rules that, you know, we really need to consider the economic and structural changes in these markets. So our philosophy plays into our ESG integration really in looking to combine some screening and include and exclusions based on specific environmental and norms based criteria. But we also add a more, I guess I would call it a proactive climate tilt to our investing. We measure the carbon uh, intensity. We're looking to target reduction, looking for improvements at the whole individual holding, but also at the portfolio level. We're looking for companies on an improving trajectory where we can identify and look to measure a desired outcome. And we factor into our efforts some explicit ways to direct capital to improve ESG factors broadly. Now, these include some thematic investing, such as in the renewable space, as well as looking for opportunities in green and sustainability-linked securities. I guess really the key point is that ESG integration needs to be forward, really forward looking in EM. So our ESG integration is not simply about focusing on issuers with current above average ESG scores, if you will. We are looking for investing towards measurable improvement, and we really think that's the way to foster change.
0: Sinran, I understand that internally you deal with all this uh, through an EMD corporate ESG scorecard. Uh, Maybe you can tell us a bit more about what that scorecard actually is uh, and and illustrate it with an example to give us an idea of how that works.
1: Sure. Uh, Internally at Lumis, every analyst assigns an ESG score to the companies under their coverage And we break down the environmental, social, and governance aspect. And this is called a materiality map. So I can walk you through an example of Indian Renewable Company that I covered. The first step is uh, to identify what factors under each category. There are so many ESG-related factors, but we will prefer to focus on those that are material in terms of financial impact. For example, for this Indian Renewable Company, uh, under environmental, so I choose energy management, carbon emission, and ecological impact. And then when it comes to social factors, uh, I think community relation is important. For example, are there are there any uh, lawsuits with local uh, residents when they acquire the land from them? Health issues, safety management, and labor practices. And lastly, when we come to governance, uh, we choose ownership, transparency, and corporate governance. And then we assign a score or a weight to each of these factors. And the second step is to give a score to each. So we take industry perspective. Namely, we try to identify the strongest and the weakest players in a certain industry uh, regarding the ESG risks that everyone faces. And then, with uh, I want to emphasize that uh, we try to be more forward-looking than third-party rating agency providers, uh, because they only update like periodically review. But we try to uh, be more forward-looking. For example, this renewable company recently gets a strong shareholder with equity injection, so we expect improving corporate governance practice, benefiting from the new board member, and then we adjust up the score. So putting this together we can calculate a weighted average ESG score. If a company has a weak score then we would ask for extra return and also we would think is there any way we can see an improvement mm, there.
0: Clear. And, and Elizabeth how do you then use this whole scorecard process uh, in your portfolio construction?
2: Yeah, so as as Zinrin describes it, you know, it's it's a it's a comp- a comprehensive approach to looking at the, at the issuer. And, and yet it boils down to an indicator of where the firm stacks up um, within their sector on these material ES and G factors. So the overall score tells us, um, I guess, we're looking at, are there some extra risks that need to be better understood? Um, these would, you know, and how does this play into whether we may want to uh, underweight our, basically our, our portfolio uh, position sizing in the in the portfolio, or do we want to limit or exclude exposure to the lower-rated issuers without seeing progress on engagement? That's one thing that we do look for. But broadly, the scorecards Enron discussed is, is a key input into our relative value process. Also, and it and it integrates into our multi-dimensional value tool. This is a critical step in thinking about the risk-reward of a potential issuer and position in the portfolio. And the portfolio can then be used be viewed within what we call our ESG center, um, during which time we can look at high-level ESG measures of the portfolio, not only using the materiality maps, the scorecards described by Zinron, but other external data along various ESG factors. But I would say the scorecards are really the core pillar in the portfolio construction process. Mm,
0: Clear. Zinron engagement uh, seems to be central to your ESG integration strategy. What can you tell us about the engagement efforts uh, with the companies in your coverage?
1: Yeah, um, I think the starting point is always to let the company know that ESG consideration is an integral part of our investment decision process. We don't really have a fixed schedule to check up with management, but we do talk with them quite regularly. um, And then ESG is an added topic to our conversation. So for companies with a weaker ESG score, either internally or externally, we will definitely ask them whether they have any concrete plans to improve the rating. Or for example, we ask a certain uh, Chinese real estate developer that, uh, have they followed up with the MSCI? Have they put down any measures to address the problems uh, that the agency has pointed out? And then when would they have the next periodic review?
0: How does that go for other sectors? And do you see maybe opportunities to invest in improving ESG uh, stories?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, our goal is never about exclusion, but to uh, engage and then try to drive for awareness and improvement. So, for example, recently there's a utility company in Hong Kong that issued an energy transition bond, which I think is a good example of improving ESG initiatives. Uh, I think the management is quite committed to their decarbonization goal, and they have a medium to long-term plan with a step-by-step approach. So on one hand, the company has committed to no additional coal-fired power plants, and then they will gradually retire the existing ones starting from middle of this decade. On the other hand, the company plans to progressively reshuffle their portfolio. So it will start by building some gas-fired power plants. And then in the long run, probably by 2050, when renewable power becomes more cost-competitive in Hong Kong, they will replace these gas plants with wind or solar farms. We did look at the framework, like we said, and then we have identified detailed plans, targets, and timelines. For example, they target to bring down their carbon emission to below 450 grams per unit of power generated. And they also plan to uh, increase their renewable capacity to 30%, which they are like halfway there already to uh, 14% by end of 2019. So putting all these factors together, I think this is a real ESG improving example and they are on track to
0: deliver their goals. Thank you, Sinran. Um, final question maybe for today's podcast, Elizabeth, is, is for you. Uh, maybe it's the most important question that I should have asked earlier. What is your prediction for the evolution of ESG within emerging markets in the, in the next five years?
2: You know, when I think of all that has changed in the last five years in this area, I am not sure I can even imagine where we will be. Um, not a bold call here, but I see significant strides in the area of data and reporting. Um, so, companies providing better transparency and tracking and reporting metrics. I think data will become um, better vetted. I think there's a there's some good initiatives on that front out there now and the data will become more comparable. So everyone is learning in this space and I think the pace of learning is accelerating and I'm very hopeful that we will see broad improvements and the improvements will build on each other.
0: All right, yeah. Well, looking, looking forward to seeing that activity in, in the coming years. Uh, I'd like to thank you both, uh, Elizabeth and Zinran, for, for being here with me and, and for your time and your insights. It was a pleasure to have you.
2: Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thank you.
0: You listened to a podcast about ESG integration with emerging market corporates through engagement and with an emphasis on climate change. I would like to thank today's guests, Elizabeth Coloran, Vice President and Portfolio Manager of EMD Portfolios at Loomis Sales, and Zinran Pan, Credit Research Analyst at Loomis Sales, for both their time and their insights. This podcast is offered to you by Loomis Sales. Loomis Sales is an affiliate of Netexas Investment Managers. For more podcasts, please visit the Fonds News website, fondsnews.nl forward slash podcast.
3: This material has been provided for information purposes only to investment service providers or other professional clients or qualified investors. And when required by local regulation, only at their written request. This material must not be used with retail investors. It is the responsibility of each investment service provider to ensure that the offering or sale of fund shares or third party investment services to its clients complies with the relevant national law. In the Netherlands, this material is provided by Natixis Investment Managers SA or its branch office, Natixis Investment Managers Netherlands. Natik Investment Managers SA is a Luxembourg management company that is authorized by the Commission de Surveillance du Secteur Financier and is incorporated under Luxembourg laws and registered under NB 115843. Registered office of Natik Investment Managers SA is 2 Rugine Monet, L. 2180 Luxembourg, Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, Netherlands, Natik Investment Managers Netherlands. Registration number 50774670. Registered Office, Stats Plateau 7, 3521 AZ, Utrecht, the Netherlands. The above referenced entities are business development units of Natixis Investment Managers, the holding company of a diverse lineup of specialized investment management and distribution entities worldwide. The investment management subsidiaries of Natixis Investment Managers conduct any regulated activities only in and from the jurisdictions in which they are licensed or authorized. Their services and the products they manage, are not available to all investors, in all jurisdictions. Although Nadeek SIS Investment Managers believes the information provided in this material to be reliable, including that from third-party sources, it does not guarantee the accuracy, adequacy, or completeness of such information. The provision of this material, and or reference to specific securities sectors, or markets within this material, does not constitute investment advice, or a recommendation, or an offer to buy, or to sell any security, or an offer of services. Investors should consider the investment objectives, risks and expenses of any investment carefully before investing. The analyses, opinions, and certain of the investment themes and processes referenced herein, represent the views of the portfolio managers, as of the date indicated. These, as well as the portfolio holdings and characteristics shown, are subject to change. There can be no assurance, that developments will transpire as may be forecasted in this material this material may not be distributed published or reproduced in whole or in part all amounts mentioned are expressed in u.s dollars unless otherwise indicated